0: Welcome to the Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening.
1: The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.
0: Hey, readers and writers, uh, welcome to this episode 326 of Charlotte Ruiz podcast, uh, Beyond 300. I'm here with co host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and we've got a great lineup for you today.
2: Yeah, we're going to start out with an author feature of Jay Ward, who is Charlotte's inaugural poet laureate and a national Sam champion, talking about his debut full-length poetry collection, Composition.
3: Then next, we have a two-minute tip from Charlotte Litt and Paul Reale, and it's the next part in his series, uh, Putting Detail in Your Writing, called The Secret of Great Detail.
0: Yeah, and then we have a uh, writing discussion post by George Harold Trudeau. It's uh, The Power of Reading Out Loud, Feeling the Magic Again.
2: Plus, we're going to finish up today with some reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode.
0: Yeah, and uh, can't wait to talk about what's up with the podcast books. We'll do that now. If you hadn't heard, uh, listeners, we've created uh, eight uh quote books and what we're calling the right quote series for release in 2023 these books cover a variety of topics uh, that uh, were discussed on the first four and a half years of the podcast and we are really excited to share these quotes
2: Yeah, we are. We've been working hard on this series and we're super excited to share it with you. Um, There's lots of inspirational and practical quotes in there. We have pulled them from over 500 podcast interviews with authors who are hardworking, award winning New York Times bestsellers, working in all sorts of different genres coming from over 33 US states and five different countries.
3: Yeah, it's a really amazing collection of wisdom. I mean, there's so many great golden nuggets, I like to call them. I feel like that's a great way to put a lot of this these inspirational words from so many great authors. I mean, we have people like David Baldacci, Um, Steve Berry, Lisa Jewell, John Hart, Ron Rash, C.J. Box, Craig Johnson, Wiley Cash. I keep going on and on and on, Um, but so many good ones. A lot of North Carolina favorites, too, like Charlie Lovett, Judy Goldman, um, and a lot of other great folks in there, too. Kathy Pickens, David Joy, and many more. Um, All the authors who were featured on the podcast prior to January 31st, 2023, appear in one or more of the eight books.
0: Yeah, and each book also comes with a forward by... Uh, Sarah or Hannah. Thank you, Sarah and Hannah, for those. And uh, also a reflection by me, because uh, why not? I mean, you know, after after four and a half years, uh, I need to reflect <laughs> on something. So I decided I'd reflect on the quotes in, in each book, and uh, and I did that. Uh, it's really what I learned uh, that helped me write, publish, and market uh, my first full-length novel, Daily Decorations, and I wanted to share this advice with others.
2: Yeah, and if you're interested in pre ordering, all of the ebooks in the series are up now for pre order. We'll be sharing links for those so you can find them easily. They're up at your favorite online vendors. And then we're also going to be making print books in the future. So look out for that too. And get this the first ebook will be free. That is not a
3: glitch. You heard me. I said free. We all love free things. So you don't have any excuse to not order it online. And when you do, please write a review so we can help spread the word.
0: Yeah, I love that. Uh, free. Uh, You know, it's not, it's it's really not hard to sell free stuff, folks. Uh, No, uh, (laughs) it's the
2: easiest way to do it. (laughs) Yeah, and so the books are up for pre-order now, but each month starting in March, we're going to have a segment on the show here where we talk about the book of the month, and we'll tell you what the topic of the book is and share some of our favorite quotes for it. So look out for that. It's going to be a lot of fun to talk about.
3: Yeah, and you can expect more details about this series in our newsletter, which you can sign up for at the podcast website at any point.
0: Yeah, okay. So we found... uh, you know, all these writers um, were really—I mean—inspirational to us, uh, and that's why we went back and did this and put this together. It's been about a seven to eight to nine-month project, but uh, it's coming together. We're looking forward to it, and uh, hope you will uh, enjoy uh, free book one on the writing life, and uh, that you will—you uh, know—by doing this, by the way, you're going to help support the podcast, and you're going to learn from our many talented author guests by by getting the book.
2: We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook.
0: All right, uh, what's up with the co host? Uh, I think I started last time with Hannah, so I'll start this time with Sarah. What's up, Sarah?
2: Um, let's see what's up with me. So, um, well tonight I'm actually going to a book swap for the Women's National Book Association, so that should be fun. I I pulled out a bunch of um books that I probably am not going to read again um to to share and then I can pick up some new reads there. Um it, It's
0: Valentine's Day. You're going out tonight to Oh, yeah.
2: not tonight. No. So when this comes out on Valentine's Day, I'm actually going to be teaching <laughs> this, tonight as of when we're recording. Tonight in uh, Showtime on Valentine's okay. Day. I'm, I'm teaching a class next month um, for Charlotte Lit about screenwriting. And the second session is actually on Valentine's Day. So I'll be spending that evening with them, but probably doing something over the weekend with my husband for Valentine's Day. Um, hopefully I will have figured out between now and then when I'm getting him <laughs> as a gift. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's what I need to work on.
3: Lots uh, of Valentine's you, Day fun. <laughs> like, I actually just picked out yeah. when I was uh, – shopping for books for my daughter i was like, getting her a bunch of like valentine's books and she's four, like four months old she's not i gonna understand any of this but um, i was just like <laughs> there's this whole display of valentine's day books and i'm like oh i'm gonna get all of these and she's gonna love this and you're just gonna sit there and stare at me and be like what does this mean <laughs> okay. um i also need to plan something for my husband so it's a good reminder um what else am i doing i am Gosh, I am doing a lot of reading right now. I have a couple of uh, new client pitches that were sent to me. So I'm kind of trying to look through all of those books. I'm working on a couple of events down in Charleston with the library society, which has been a lot of fun. Um, I love kind of being, uh, having a role in the literary community down here. It's, it's great. We've got a lot of good um, events happening at the library and with our local bookstore, Buxton Books. So that's been really exciting for me. And then Getting ready for our move to Cincinnati this summer, so starting to plan what that's going to look like, which yeah. is um, exciting.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and I've heard of this thing called Valentine's Day. I'm, um, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to <laughs> think about uh, think like... about that. I guess, yeah. <laughs> it's all there yeah it's february 14th right here on my notes yeah that's that's okay janet's like right. in the background
3: uh, just like really landis yeah. <laughs> so, so good news, yeah i'm getting your expectations
2: is, up too much <laughs> yeah.
0: the good news is this is like back of the future because we're recording this two weeks before yeah february 14th so got i'm actually to Think got about, about it you better have a big now, surprise up your this. sleeve mm-hmm. <laughs> i am uh working about this time of the month on some of the print books. I think I'm hoping I've worked out some issues with Ingram spark and the whole thing we're doing there. And we, we're probably going to have the eBooks finalized and for most of them and up and loaded and everything. You already, you can already pre-order, but, but our work will be about getting close to done. Then I hope. And, um, I mentioned in the last episode, I'm going to be on this uh, book life publisher Weekly weekly, uh, uh, little conference they're doing on February, uh, the, 25th you can look them up online about that and we'll put some more information about that in the show notes so anyway that's that's kind of what's going on it's a lot of busy stuff related to the podcast books and podcasting is fun we're going to have a good time uh and by the way we did decide to create although we didn't initially um with we were just going to do ebooks but we're going to put print books out too because we think people might like to hold the quotes in their hands uh and refer back to them i certainly will all right, so uh, let's see here. We've got uh, we got an interview we've done, and uh, it was Sarah who did it. Uh, and, Sarah, you want to introduce this section. It's Jay Ward. You've talked about his book title, Composition, uh, Poetry, mm-hmm. which you've read. Tell us a little bit about Jay.
2: Yeah, so um, Jay Ward, also known as Junius Ward, is a poet and teaching artist from Charlotte. Um, He's a national slam champion, an individual world poetry slam champion, and he wrote Sing Me a Lesser Wound, which came out in 2020 from Bull City Press, and Composition, which is the book that we talked about today, which um, just came out in 2023. He's currently the program director for Breathe Inc., where he facilitates writing and performance workshops and coaches youth poets attending Brave New Voices each year. And he's the first um, poet laureate in Charlotte. So he's very involved and engaged in the poetry community out here. Um, does a lot of events, and he's just a great asset to our local community.
3: Yeah, so, and he seems like a really cool person. I bet this was a really fun interview to do. Um, his book composition interrogates historical perceptions of blackness and biracial identity as documented through a southern lens. It utilizes a variety of poetic forms, um, and Jay showcases to his readers an innovative approach as he unflinchingly explores the way language, generational trauma, loss, res- and resilience shape us into who we are, the stories we carry, and what we will inevitably pass on.
0: Yeah, and he's gotten some praise. Uh, Michael Malakadi, I can't pronounce the name, author of All Earthly Bodies, says composition looks at identity, the way a flip book looks at an image. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. So
2: yeah, I actually probed him about that um, that blurb <laughs> because I thought it was so apt for the book. So it's yeah. if you listen to the interview, you get to hear him talk about that a little bit.
0: Well, they're gonna listen. <laughs> they're here. They're they're with us, and we're gonna play it right now.
2: Um, Well, I'm so happy to be here today with Jay Ward coming back to the podcast. Uh, Jay, thank you for joining us.
4: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
2: So I I love the title of this book, Composition, and I definitely see different meanings in that word in the context of the book. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of the title and what that word means to you?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, So a lot of the book has to do with uh, me growing up uh, kind of through a Southern lens, but taking a look at uh, um, uh, Blackness. Through a biracial lens, um, so part of the title is is composition, like how how a person is made up. But composition can also have to do with um, with music, um, and in music, a contrapuntal is two melodies played at once to create a third, you know, create a third melody. And it's also a poetic form that I use in the book. Uh, composition also brings to mind like a composition notebook, which, as a as, as a side fact, is usually marbled, black and white. Uh, but also is a place where notes are jotted down and and meaning is found and uh, people through work, you know, find greater meaning in their journaling. So uh, I think all of those things kind of come into the title.
2: Yeah, that's so cool. I didn't even think about like the marbled image of the composition notebook. That's wonderful. Um, And and as you kind of alluded to, a lot of your work focuses on identity. And there's a blurb on this book from uh, Michael Mlicode. I might be butchering that name, but he says, a uh, composition looks at identity the way a flip book looks at an image, which I think is so apt. Can you talk a little bit about exploring identity in your work and maybe how exploring that in your writing has helped to shape how you think of yourself?
4: Yeah, um, I think I've I've had ideas about uh, like my own composition for a long time. And, and, you know, speaking to other people who are biracial from, you know, from different backgrounds um, has kind of shaped at least this work in examining how I feel about myself, but also how others might view, uh, me. Um, and that's kind of explored a lot through, um, Dr. Maria Root, uh, in the appendix, um, her bill of rights is included in the appendix, which kind of goes into how a person of multiracial background, uh, has the right to view themselves certain way, uh, and also understand that, uh, the environment also takes, uh, takes play in how we view ourselves and how others view us. So the, the flip book image, which is which is a great uh, comment by Michael, uh, and I, I really appreciate Michael. Michael also was the editor uh, for the book. Um, I think that also uh, really comes into play in terms of form. Um, so one of the things I wanted to do in the book was uh, take form and break it and marry it and combine it and create uh, new which which then would make the collection an overall metaphor of the work being discussed uh, in my mind anyway. So uh, like finding different ways to talk to documents to talk back to history um, to create or break form um, I think was a way of inner exploration for me as well you know what does what does this mean from an identity standpoint what does this mean for, uh, how I carry myself, and what does this mean in the greater conversation between myself and other people that are also uh, multiracial or biracial?
2: Yeah, and I think that that really comes through here, and like you're talking about, you play so much with form too. Um, and I definitely encourage anyone listening to go out and buy the the physical hard copy of this because it's it's beautifully presented on the page, and there's a lot that you're doing formally with how you lay the poems out. There are images, there are documents, um, appendices, like you talked about. Um, I'm really interested in the relationship between the subject and the form in your poetry. And you talked about this a little bit. There's this sort of meta sense where the way you're you're playing with form plays into the, the themes you're talking about. But how does that interact for you? Does the content typically dictate the form of what you're writing or vice versa? Or is it a little bit of both?
4: So um, I took the long way around on this. Uh, the, the original manuscript that was going to be this book was much shorter and I submitted it like six years ago, I think, uh, to two manuscript contests, uh, and they were finalists in both contests, but didn't didn't make it. And I went to I went to Breadloaf in two thousand nineteen, and through some conversations there, I decided, oh, you know, form would be a good way to um, have a greater metaphor for this work. Uh, so I took six months and just studied forms that I knew, but, um, there's a Norton anthology, uh, called the making of a poem, which kind of breaks down, um, like the benefit of each, uh, form and kind of what its strong suits are and what it emphasizes in a poem. I spent six months with that book and with other books, just trying to figure out what forms would best tell the story, um, for each individual poem and then applying it to each individual poem and then getting halfway through and saying, well, this doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then finding forms that I could combine, finding forms that I could break that in some way spoke to the, the strength of that poem. So each poem was kind of tailored. Form, form was, for most of these poems, form was after. Form was during the revision process, uh, as opposed to kind of going into it saying, I'm going to make a sistina here. Um, so that was, that was a really interesting process. And then after, after that six months, uh, I had the pleasure of working with uh, Tayamba Jess, in a manuscript coaching class. Uh, and of course, as a person who's exploring form, you know, I'm super excited to have Tyamba Jess look at this manuscript. And in that, in that version of the manuscript, his the biggest takeaway I got from him was if, if you're gonna do anything with form, like push it. If you're gonna if you're gonna do something with documents, instead of creating subtext, create supertext. Um, you know, do, do, basically he was saying, do more with this than what you're mm-hmm. doing. Um, and so then I spent another uh, several months after that, uh, kind of going into it and figuring out, is this the best way? Uh, what can I do to, to tighten this up?
2: Well, that's fascinating. And I feel like you really push the boundaries of form in your work too, not just in how the poems are presented on the page, but in sort of what a poem is and how we can, I guess, process or perceive it. Um, Obviously there's, you know, poetry as a written literary form, but it's also an auditory form. There's kind of a musical element when you read it out loud. A lot of these poems, almost function as visual art, the way that they're laid out on the page. And you have, I think, at least one ekphrastic poem as well, which is responding to artwork. Um, There's also kind of like a a kinesthetic element to your work sometimes. I know you have a background in slam poetry. And when you perform or read a poem, sometimes you incorporate movements and gestures. It's almost like this interdisciplinary, like multi-sensory sort of approach to your work, which I find really fascinating. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit and how those different elements of the poem combine for you and how you kind of bring a poem to life in different ways
4: Mm, yeah so first of all thank you for for those comments and secondly uh, I have to acknowledge um Shane Maynard who's a poet and visual artist uh here in Charlotte and I decided when I was working on this book uh especially after especially after talking to Tayamba, that I really wanted to make this um a book that performed kind of uh I'm used to performance poetry uh and, and though I kind of treat them as separate spaces between literary and, and performance, I decided, you know, I put a lot of effort into figuring out how to present a poem physically on stage. So I wanted to figure out a way to make each poem kind of perform in a visual way and in a, in a sound, uh, in a sonic way. So uh, I worked with Shane a lot, like on the visions that I had on, on how to make them possible, because I am totally inept when it comes to uh, visuals or graphics of any kind, so Shane Shane worked with me and, and we were able to to kind of figure out that. So that's a testament to, to Shane's uh, abilities and talents there. Um, and then a little bit more on, on making the poems perform. Yeah, I wanted to incorporate visual art and I wanted to incorporate um, ekphrastic, but I also wanted to figure out like. When, when you're reading this poem, how can I make this more of an experience? How can I make this um, where there's, there's something going on more than just the reading? Um, so in a performance, I, I really try to focus on each word, on each phrase and figure out like, how do I demonstrate this physically? How do I make the visual element uh, really pronounced um, in the performance? So with the poems, it was kind of a challenge of uh, the poems need to be able to live and breathe on their own, but also, you know, what if there's a visual element here um, that incorporates line breaks, but it also incorporates uh, how the text talks to other documents in the text or or other poems in the text, uh, how they're laid out on the page, um, how they flow from page to page. So I don't know if I'm answering the question, actually, but uh, I mean, those are the things I was really thinking about in culling the manuscript. Uh, In a lot of ways, a lot of the poems were done for a while, but I I probably spent at least a year really tinkering with them with the form and how they would be presented on the page.
2: Yeah, no, I think that that definitely comes across. There's just every poem sort of works on multiple levels and multiple ways. And kind of along with that, I know you mentioned earlier, some of these are contrapuntal poems. So they um, it, it's almost like multiple poems in one, you might have different columns where you can read across, or you can read down and everything sort of works in different ways, but also works together. Um, or you have poems where there might be variations of the same line that you can read forwards and backwards, and they make sense every way, but they give a different meaning. Um, and I would read some of these poems, and I would just be like, how, how did you do that? <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's hard enough to write one poem that just reads in a linear way from beginning to end, but to write something where it can be read in multiple ways and they all contribute to the meaning and they work together and they also work independently. It just seems like such an interesting challenge. So can you talk a little bit about how you construct a poem like that? That's almost multiple poems in one.
4: I um, So after Olio, tayamba Jess, t- I was uh, completely infatuated with, with that form, with contrapuntal. Um, there was a time that if I was given a prompt, uh, I would probably challenge myself during the prompt to write the prompt, but also write it as a contrapuntal. I think it's kind of a logic puzzle for me. And I'm, I'm a very linear thinker, which which gets in the way of writing poems a lot of times. So I have to kind of ignore that instinct when I'm writing a draft. But when I'm revising, which is what I enjoy much more than writing, I think I enjoy it because I'm much better at revising, I think, than my initial drafts are of poetry. So um, being a linear thinker thinker and being a puzzle, you know, a puzzle solver, I think really goes into uh, not only contrapuntals, but I think in general, I'm always looking to see if I can push a form or if I can challenge myself in some way. Uh, I was at a writing retreat last week and uh, we were talking about the golden shovel and, and the prompt was to write... A golden shovel but then the facilitator Julian Randall said um, but you know if you want to challenge yourself you can make a double golden shovel in 20 minutes <laughs> um, which I did wow. <laughs> um, I'm not going to say it's good though but you know that's kind of the challenge I, I kind of see for myself as, as a logical linear thinker is to try to you know figure out ways to, to put the puzzle puzzle together
2: Oh, I love that. And some of these poems also are found poems, which I think is really cool. You know, you're playing with language and things like a Senate bill or a letter or dictionary definitions or even um, like a chemical formula. Um, where do you find inspiration from your poems? I know you talked about sometimes you you might use a prompt in a workshop, but do you often find inspiration from things that surround you in life?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and for this manuscript in particular, um, you know i had the I had the first part of the manuscript kind of ready six years ago. The other poems were brand new and they were they were based on me thinking about uh thinking about my past and thinking about uh experiences that kind of had to do or kind of intersected with with identity and moments of finding myself. So because it was thematic in that way, it was a little easier to find um some of the inspiration for writing. Uh, some of the inspiration for form, I, I, again, I think comes from uh, just researching form and, and figuring out what works best uh, in certain situations and, and hoping that I got it right. But but in general, I think a lot of my writing came from the lens of fatherhood, um, of, you know, figuring out not only for me, but for my kids, what, what identity looks like. Um, when, when I was growing up, which is this is an aside, so I apologize. But when, when I was growing up, um, I was pretty my, my parents did a really good job of making sure I knew who I was and, and was comfortable in my identity, uh, even though there's there's environmental things that happen that make you a little less comfortable. But I think I had a leg up in that regard. But I had a lot of friends that that did not have that Um And so the identity of figuring out who they were and where they belonged and how other people saw them, I think was a little bit more challenging for others than it was for me at that age. So in thinking about my kids, it's kind of the same thing, like figuring out what this means for them and kind of taking that journey all over again through their eyes.
2: Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um, And I, I've loved hearing you talk about this book, and I want to come back and talk a little bit more, too, about your, your career and your work in Charlotte. Um, but first, you have a few poems you would like to share with us from the book?
4: Sure. Um, I guess the first one I'll read is um, kind of grappling with, uh, with heredity and, uh, you know, inheritance. Mm-hmm like prophets of Baal. We had gotten a whole hog from Orlander, pink-fleshed and splayed like a sacrifice to cover sin, which is belief that tomorrow is a place we can eat. I walk around the offering before the body is pulled. The men maneuver flame and smoke seems to follow me no matter where I go. Dad is gone to tend the fire. My uncle motions the bag toward me, Peels it from the bottle's mouth like a fast-moving rain cloud. It burns sweet on my finger. I look around nervous, the way I would years later. That's good stuff, my uncle says. And I nod in belief, face contorting into an amen. But it burns, it burns, like the split-open swine on cinder-block see How the smoke follows our gods, like eyes of a portrait, an heirloom. The men walk in their own ritual of pretense, ignoring... Whole conflagrations. My uncle ignores the whole burns in his chest, just like dad. One day, I'd beg Uncle Skin to put the cigarettes down. He'd say there's no point in quitting now when he could feel what was chasing him already had hold. Temple of blackened breathing, charred flesh. His lung is smoking in the pit. It's right there, leapt from his torso. We hop out his truck, and the brown paper cloud disappears under his seat, crackling its own thunder. He shows me how to coerce embers back into flame while he lights a new port. Done. The tradition handed down. Decades pass and I still drink cognac. My throat an altar of wet ground. Each sip proof. Each taste a howl for resurrection. Bring it back. That moon. Bring it back. His smile. An introduction. A soft mischief. I don't even think dad would have minded the Hennessy really. But I never told him most beliefs we build on secrets. When I say cancer runs in my family, what I mean is my father and his five siblings couldn't run fast enough. What I mean is I ain't been back to my hometown since this uncle's funeral. What I mean is dad is gone. My uncle followed like smoke. I'm being chased a monster's hot breath searches for my lungs. I get down face to gnarled face with the animal whose skin pops. I can smell the pork ripen like impending rain on summer air. I summon the fire now, swallow it like the men and gods before me. I stretch a rod through billowing smoke to touch, to test, to measure a prophecy against an unforgiving sky. And I think the next one I'll read is part of a series. It's just one from the series of uh, erasures from a document called Senate Bill 219, which was the anti-miscegenation law, uh, the the most famous one that we would probably be familiar with. So I I went through section by section and and decided to do some erasures from it. This particular erasure is a huzzle. But I also bolded part of it so that there's a haiku inside the huzzle. This one is called The Long Game. Be it enacted, any Negro or mixture thereof personally registering shall be punished by the penitentiary. For each registration properly made, the registrant shall be humbled by the penitentiary. Marriage shall be granted to applicants of pure white race only, no epithalamia sung in the penitentiary, save a white person. No other non caucasic blood shall avoid running from the penitentiary. The state shall be paid for the purposes of this act, funded by the penitentiary. All inconsistent with this act shall swell like light, flooding the penitentiary. um and and i guess if i do one more um i actually wrote this one at breadloaf if i can find it
5: um
4: yeah so i'm a i'm a Dallas Cowboys fan i'll pause a few seconds so that all your your listeners can boo um but i wrote this poem at a at a time that was a little hard to be a Cowboys fan which was during the NFL boycott um Jerry Jones uh, said some things to his players and made sure that his players did not take part in the boycott. And so I kind of created a source text that was imagined. I created a source text of Jerry Jones talking to his players the way I heard it uh, and then created an erasure from that. So this is uh, Jerry Jones addresses his players regarding the NFL boycott. Listen, uh, ain't no slave if you get paid and a field ain't antebellum if you own one instead of in one don't confuse what we gave you for something you earned wait a cotton pickin minute ain't training camp hours just like good old pigskin ain't chitlins you conflatin patriots with runaways not my boys Holdouts might get cut. Where is your hand? On your heart or wallet or over your mouth. Yes, over your mouth. Your speech is free, but muffled deep in the heart. Of Texas, we play for the lights and for the song. Dance, dance. I said, dance. I said, you know how many folk would kill to be you in this house? my house. I said, I love all God's boys, but under these stars, we just praise America's team. You best show up, shut up, and that's just how it is between owners and you people. Entertainers should know better. Imagining your knee could change America's channel.
2: Well, those are all amazing (laughs) thank you i have goosebumps those were so wonderful um and just so our listeners know you are wearing carolina panthers shirt so you're still still representing for the home team
4: (laughs) i will will always represent for the home team but yeah nice (laughs)
2: um so thank you so much for sharing those and i would love to talk a little bit more about just your your career and your work here in charlotte too um as a charlotte poet laureate can you tell us briefly what sort of work you actually do as our poet laureate here and maybe What are two highlights of the experience so far?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I think I'm kind of creating what that role looks like as I go. Uh, I don't think there was really a template for it coming in, Um, but I'm excited to kind of have a template in place in case the next poet laureate needs one. I think there's a freedom here that the next poet laureate also can recreate, um, redefine what the role means for them and for the city. So I'm excited about that. So myself, um, once once the announcement was made and once we knew once I knew that I would be the poet laureate, I immediately started uh, getting arts organizations together uh, and individuals and just kind of figuring out how we could partner together. you know what what are people doing right now, and how can I assist them without detracting? Uh, I really did not want to reinvent the wheel. you know there's great organizations doing amazing things, so there's no need for me to to do what they're doing, but if I can in some way help them or if I can create something new uh, to create something that wasn't there before, then that was my main interest. Um, And I found that uh, finding funding was a lot harder than I probably anticipated. A lot of the things that I started working on immediately in April are just now coming to fruition right here and now. Um, I think some of the the things I was able to do uh, first was to find um, money for a scholarship for a writer of color for Charlotte to go to the Watering Hole Writers Retreat, which just happened. Um, Charlotte is Creative was, was very generous. So uh, they helped me create a scholarship for that. I also worked with the um, the, the, the prison, uh, it's really the detention center, the Mecklenburg Detention Center, um, and worked with the program director there who was, who was very, very helpful and very willing uh, to create a, a creative writing program there. Um, so uh, Shane Maynard, actually, of Gorilla Poets, is kind of heading that up. And Omega Sparks, uh, who's a local hip-hop uh, producer and hip-hop artist, is actually working with the detention center to create a music program and uh, to also uh, install a music studio in there for the residents. I've worked with Charlotte Lit, West Trade Review, and Goodyear Arts to create a uh, writers, a poetry fellowship, which, which starts this year. We're actually going to be Going over the applications, which will be a year-long poetry uh, fellowship, which provides opportunities for uh, learning through the catalog of classes with uh, Charlotte Lit, but also an opportunity to learn the inside of publishing from West Trade Review, uh, opportunities to facilitate workshops, uh, to have a month-long residency at Goodyear Arts, to have a reading. Uh, so this is really aimed to take one poet uh, in Charlotte and and really expose them to things that they might not have uh, otherwise, the opportunity to learn from and, and to really uh, push their career growth. So we're all really excited about that. So once a month from January to September will be a poetry workshop at the University Regional Library in University City, uh, followed by office hours uh, from three to five with the Poet Laureate. So uh, those, those are things I'm excited about. I've got some other things in the works that I can't announce yet, but that's those are the things I'm excited about so far
2: wow that's that's a lot and those are certainly amazing opportunities and great for people to be able to just you know interact with you and learn about poetry firsthand um and, and kind of thinking about that you know part of your role obviously here is to be sort of an ambassador for poetry to the community if you're talking to somebody who maybe has never written poetry before but is interested in trying it what would you say to them
4: yeah i mean i would say jump in both feet we uh you know poetry is uh vital for us and I'm kind, of, I'm kind of paraphrasing from Audre Lorde's um, uh, essay, but poetry is vital to our existence. I think as poets, we know that. And I think most people would agree that arts in general are just a vital part of the human existence. Uh, we all like poetry in some way, even if we don't know it or don't want to admit it. You know, we, we like music or we like uh, so much of poetry exists in other art forms as well. So tapping into that is always going to be beneficial. So even if a person doesn't, you know, view themselves as a poet or doesn't view themselves as creative, um, there's a bucket of tools. You know, poetic devices are, are tools and we can all use them. And we all do, you know, whether we're writing nonfiction or, or fiction or whether we're creating, you know, visual art on the campus. I mean, on a, a canvas, we're, we're all using some of those poetic devices in some way. Uh, and those poetic devices can be taught. And so, we can find ways to creatively write, and if we do that, I think we find part of ourselves we didn't know was there, and and we and we we can also lose this expectation that it has to be good. Uh, what it has to do is serve the the function of art. Uh, as we're writing, it, it serves that function. Now, whether it's good, that's objective, and that's that's something that can be for later down the road. But for a person just beginning, there's no expectation. It doesn't have to be good. Uh, it just has to express. Uh, and then we learn from how we express.
2: You're making me feel expi- inspired. <laughs> um, and before I let you go, I, I want to ask a question that we like to ask a lot of our authors, which is if you could give one piece of advice to yourself as a younger writer, what would you like to tell yourself?
4: Man. Um, that's a good question. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that before. And I'm, I'm thinking about myself as, as a younger writer. Um, and I'm also thinking about that in comparison with the younger writers that I see today and like all the opportunities that young writers have today that I wish that I had. And I guess my advice would be to don't give up, but also to seek, to search, to find. Um, and, and, and that can just be a fill in the blank because there's so many things to search and find. I mean, you know, there's craft, there's, um, there's other people's writing who you didn't know was out there uh, and, and you think you don't like poetry because of what's been taught to you or what you found. But there's poets out there who speak so uniquely to your existence and you don't think that's possible, but it is seek and search and find can, can be community, you know, that community of writers that helps push you and helps inspire you. Um, So, yeah, I I guess my, my advice would be to seek, search and find it's out there, you know, fill in the blank. It's out there.
2: I love that. And I I hope that everyone listening takes advantage of that and of, you know, the the wonderful opportunities we have here in the community and wherever you are, um, you know, and and find that poet in you and in the world around you. Um, And thank you so much for being here today. This was just wonderful and very inspiring. And I encourage everyone to go out and get composition as well and enjoy that book.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
2: If you like what we're doing, and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash
0: podcast
2: and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide
0: to contribute. All right, we're in Act Two here, um, writing topics uh, with uh, Charlotte Litt and also our community blog. And starting off with uh, a two-minute tip uh, from Charlotte Litt uh, with Paul Reale. And the title of this tip is Putting Detail in Your Writing. It's part two of the series that uh, he's doing this month. And this particular one is The Secret of Great Detail. So let's listen in, and then we'll uh, talk about it.
5: Hi, I'm Paul Reale from Charlotte Lit with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is the second of three tips about adding detail to your writing. Good description is essential in prose, and it's a place many writers struggle. In this tip, we'll look at the secret of great detail, who sees what and why. No description is neutral. Every detail is written or should be written as seen through the eyes of the scene's point of view character. This tells you both what to describe in detail and what details are relevant. Imagine a man looking at his wife. They've been married 20 years. What does he notice and what does he not? Does he notice what she's wearing, how she has her hair? Maybe he notices she looks tired, which you tell the reader because their relationship is tired. Now, the same man looks at the same woman a year later a year after she has left him. What does he notice now? The spring in her step? The new jewelry? What does he notice about the coffee house where they've run into each other? Is it noisy with the sounds of people enjoying their lives, amplifying his own unhappiness? A classic writing exercise is to describe a barn as seen from the point of view of a character who is newly in love. Then just to describe it again from the point of view of a person who has just lost someone they loved now here's your action step review the descriptions in your scenes and ask who is seeing this why are they noticing it how would they describe it and then rewrite accordingly for more 2 minute tips from charlotte lit listen to beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit org slash tips.
0: All right. Thank you, uh, Paul, at uh, Charlotte Lit for another thought-provoking tip. Uh, what do you think, Sarah?
2: Um, well, I think there is a lot of great stuff in here about kind of the subjectivity of detail and how um, the way that you would describe a scene or the way the details that you would select to put in are so dependent on the perspective that you're in who the character is, but also where the character is in the story. Like if you put a character in a certain setting or in a room with another character at, you know, 10 pages in, they might react differently and notice different things in the scene or different things about the other character than they would hundred pages in depending on how they might've evolved or what is going on in the relationship or what's happening in the story. So I think that's a really good point to think about, um, all the other factors that are going into the scene in terms of perspective and uh, the story arc and how that impacts what detail you put, as opposed to just, oh, these are cool details. Like, let me just put this out here to describe the setting or the character or whatever it might be. Make Make it something that helps to bring the characters to life and also helps to advance the story as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, Hannah, what did you pick up uh, yeah, from I mean, this Yeah, I agree two? with you. And I
3: think um, listening to what you're saying too, Sarah, just like it's like intentional detail, you know, just things that actually make a difference for the character's journey. Um, those are kind of my favorite books is when I feel like I'm inside the character's heads. Um, I think it's really an important, it's it's sort of a, it's a detail, but you wouldn't really think of it that way. I think, like, I think when you hear the, the term detail in writing, you're just sort of like, oh, well, they're going to say this thing is orange and Uh, shiny and whatever just like these normal descriptive terms but really it's like the detail and how the character changes throughout the story or how they look what have they been through that changes how they look at a different character or react to something differently and um, I think I really like that tip because it's not really something you would think of very often when it comes to detail in writing I think it's sort of an abstract way of looking at it but it's like very intentional and important Um, so yeah I really like that a lot
0: yeah, and this reaffirms for me this whole idea that uh, point of view um, and what you select and how you present the detail in the scene actually um, helps you figure out what detail is important and what detail is not. It also helps you realize what's interesting uh, about the particular story. I mean, when I you know I first started writing, I was thinking, okay, well, you got to think of a story, you got to think of a storyline, you got to think of a plot, but actually more authors I've interviewed, and the more I've written, I realized that it's really what particular characters are seeing in the world around them that becomes really interesting, right? And that's where the detail of what they are seeing and feeling and experiencing uh, helps to kind of move uh, the story along. So yeah, great stuff, Paul. Um, appreciate the tip. Uh, and uh, again, thanks for that. And uh, we're going to come back in just a moment uh, with our community blog post uh, right after we uh, hear this quick message.
2: If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits. But with the Beyond 300 format, we're featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play or participate in an author or marketing talk or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details.
0: All right. uh, We've got a community blog post here, George Harold Trudeau. And uh, I have to tell you, listeners, you're going to also get a little treat here because he's a a high school teacher and you're going to hear his class in just a moment, too. So uh, the title of his blog post Mm -hmm. is The Power of Reading Out Loud, Feeling the Magic Again. Hannah, can you tell us about George?
3: Yeah. And as you mentioned, he's a high school English teacher, which is Awesome. I can't wait to hear from his students. That sounds really fun. Um, He enjoys teaching Shakespeare, American novels, and poetry to his students. Um, The Jesus of Jericho is his first book, but he's written several articles on literature and religion throughout his career.
0: Yeah, Sarah, tell us about uh, his book.
2: Sure, so it's called The Jesus of Jericho, Um, and in this book he suggests that the Jesus of the New Testament offers a non-tribalistic identity. By immersing the reader in the Good Samaritan story, he confronts society's worst demons, but the reader will also have to confront their own, as they wrestle with why forgiveness is a necessity for a just world.
0: Okay, but that's not necessarily what this post is about, because uh, he's trying to uh, feel the magic again with the power of reading out loud.
6: This is George Harold Trudeau, and this is my English class.
5: Hello, Charlotte readers.
6: I will be reading The Power of Reading Out Loud, Feeling the Magic Again. The sun peered through my classroom windows. The trees were full of birds singing their morning canticles. There my students were, resting their heads on their crossed arms, laying down like depressed puppies that couldn't go outside. In my hand was a textbook, The Tragedy of Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. I felt my students' dread of Shakespeare build up and fill the room. Okay, I said to myself, how do I get this book into their brains? I was new to teaching. I was intimidated by the spirit of apathy and technological addiction, which has altered our intrinsic longing for beauty into a cheap desire to be passively entertained. Despite these barriers, I knew I had to find a way to connect with my students. I looked at the book, then at my students, then I looked outside. I grabbed my keys, jingled over to my cabinet, plucked a fake crown from the closet as well as a ruler, and cried out, Students! Romans! Countrymen! Let's go outside! My students looked at each other with curiosity and apprehension. Their faces read, Oh, here we go again, Mr. Trudeau is being corny and weird. <laughs> Two households, both alike in dignity, I yelled, as I paced the students like a wrestler about to enter a ring. My voice was barely audible because of a gust of wind that whipped by. I read the next line with much more gusto. In fair Verona, where we lay our scene. Some students were laughing, others uncomfortable, and others still unsure of what was going on. As I kept reading, I heard a student whisper to another, Is Mr. Trudeau on drugs? I grabbed my ruler, pointed it at the student like a deadly rapier. I hate the word, as I hate hell, all Montagues and thee, with a face of pure murder. The student's face was beet red. Then, looking around, began to laugh. Soon enough, the students moved from skepticism to acceptance and then to eagerness as they volunteered to read different parts. Yes, Vince, um, you're going to be the prince. Here is the crown. Now, remember, you are angry at the rioters. You have to break up the Capulets and Montagues. Can you sound angry when you read these lines? Good. All right, let's see it. I walked back into school feeling accomplished. Despite their struggle to connect with books, my students genuinely loved Romeo and Juliet. It isn't just high school students that struggle to connect with literature. Unfortunately, many feel reading to be a stale, solitary experience. They are intimidated by Shakespeare or poetry and give up in the first few lines. I have been there. I see the words on the page, and my heart feels cold. The words move to my head, but my heart doesn't feel the magic. But drama struck a different chord with my students. They loved it. I think it is because the lines are transformed into the actions of the players on the stage. Drama is not merely words on a page. It is an immersive experience. But isn't this true of all literature? Literature began as oral traditions passed along to each generation. Families would gather around the bard to hear of Odysseus or Gilgamesh. There was nothing solitary or stale about ancient literature. In religious services, congregants will read passages from holy books in unison or perform call-response liturgy. It seems we may have lost this in our hyper-individualistic culture. What ancient literature and religion seem to be teaching us is that there is something magical, dare I say sacramental, about reading out loud. When one reads out loud, we turn down the voices in our head, the to-do lists, the emails, and we turn up the literature. We take arms against the sea of worries and the thousand cynical thoughts that flesh is heir to. We turn up the written word so that we can experience the joy of reading. Rather than let the words fall through your brain like a sieve, hold up the words off the page by using your lips. Speak the words like the bards and actors of old. Speak the words trippingly off the tongue, out for the world to hear and back into your ears. You may surprise yourself, embarrass yourself, and maybe even laugh at yourself. Who knows? You might feel the magic again.
3: Are those his students clapping? (laughs) Yes i couldn't tell if it was one of your sound effects or if it was actually oh, don't that give it
0: away hannah don't give it away that's uh, everybody's listening as we're talking here now you know so. <laughs> yeah, sound effect. But we, that it we're gonna that's gonna be his class See, that, there you go so that is the class all right uh oh. Oh, this is a wonderful piece wonderful piece i love it thank you uh george for that um and uh so yeah reactions here uh jump in hannah what do you think
3: I love that post so much. That was really fun and kind of different too. I love that his class was there for and they're probably just like, as he was say, I love, I feel like he wrote teenage reactions super well in that where he's like their face was beet red i was i was having a great time but they're rolling you know whatever um so i can only imagine what the energy in that class was as he was reading aloud i'm sure it was just a really great time um but yeah no i love that and i think you know as we talk about audiobooks too that's i thought about that a lot during while he was kind of saying like it's you can kind of make reading aloud could be fun like theater and really kind of just like speaking with the chirp in your voice or like you know whatever it might be just making it fun and it's it's a good way to connect with people by reading aloud and um i love bringing the term magic into it too because i think just sort of like taking the story off the page and let helping it to kind of connect with people and be something a little bit different is it helps you of reconnect with the magic of the actual story itself. So um, I mean, I thought it was a lot of fun, and, and he he definitely knows how to deliver, I think, with the uh, <laughs> performance.
2: So I thought I really loved yeah. it.
0: What do you think, sir?
2: Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I think this was probably the first time we've had a whole classroom of students appear on the podcast. So yeah. <laughs> that was really cool. <laughs> students, if you listen back to this, thank you for participating and be good and do your homework and don't make Mr. Trudeau bring out the rapier again. Um, mm. <laughs> but I think this is a lot of fun to listen to. And yeah, he made a lot of great points about how literature um, really lives in a different way when it's read out loud. Like he was saying, it starts started as an oral tradition. Um, something like Shakespeare obviously is meant to be delivered out loud. Poetry oftentimes comes to life in a different way when you can actually hear the sounds of it. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a dimension that I think sometimes we neglect when we're just reading things on the page and we don't really think about writing as also being um, an oral or even sometimes an almost musical thing. Um, And there's a nice tie in here as well to the interview with Jay Ward for this episode, because he, also performs a lot of his poetry out loud. and There's an extra element to it that way. And that's something that we kind of talked about in our interview was um, the the sonic element to writing and words. And I've also heard a lot of writers give the tip that if you're working on something on on your own, read it out loud to yourself. And that's a good way to kind of hear things that you would miss if you were just reading it on the page. Um, So yeah, I, I think that you can kind of take a a page from this book and maybe have fun with that and do the voices and perform it for yourself. And it might, um, might help you pick up on things you want to revise or at least just kind of bring it to life in a new way and have fun with it.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. This is a great tie into this uh, earlier uh, interview that you did with Jay Ward because slam poetry and, and when poetry's read aloud, in fact, I enjoy poetry, listening to poetry more than reading it. Actually, I like to hear what the poet, you know, wants to do with the words as opposed to me trying to figure it out <laughs> because I'm not a trained poet, you know, and and to hear that cadence and to hear it, and particularly with someone uh, in, in the slam context, that's all performance based, right? It's all kind of getting it out there. And so, uh, and also just to harken back to what we're here all about at the podcast. I mean, this, from the very first day I started this, I wanted to do something I thought was a little different, which was have authors read, uh, from their work. And so, you know, where they're giving voice to the written words is, uh, you know, they're putting the emphasis in the places that it should be based upon what they uh, thought about when they were writing, you know, that prose. Um, yeah. And then we're going to flip it on his head with the uh, podcast books and uh, they're, they're, their voices are going to give uh, voice to their text. Uh, so we're going around and around here with that. Uh, but anyway, George, thank you much for, um, for that, uh, and also to the class for, for showing up as well. Uh, we got a little quick quick uh, message here, and then we're going to wrap up with uh, some book recommendations. Uh, and uh, here we go.
2: We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlotte readerspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts landiswave.com com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com and by the way we won't spam you because that takes way too much time
0: All right, we're in uh, act three book recommendations and uh, what's next on the podcast uh sarah what you recommending this week
2: I'm actually going to recommend a nonfiction book this time, which is kind of unusual for me. I, I usually read fiction, but mm-hmm. um, I'm recommending White Rose by Kip Wilson. Um, I've been doing some research for a new writing project of my own um, that I'm in the early stages on about the White Rose movement, which is this student movement in Munich during World War II. Um there was a small group of students that secretly wrote and distributed these leaflets where they were basically talking about the evils of the rise of Nazism and the abuses of the Nazi party and encouraging people to stand up and to resist that. And they distributed these leaflets, um, in secret. They were eventually caught and, and they were all executed by the Gestapo, but they did spread their message very widely and affected a lot of people. And they're really held up as heroes these days in German society. Um, and one of the ringleaders of the movement was this uh, young woman named Sophie Scholl, who, she was only 21 when, when she died. She and her brother were part of this this small movement. Um, and I'm actually related to them on my my dad's side. So that's kind of how I became aware of them and why got interested in writing about this in the first place, but she was just a really cool, very smart, very brave person, very sort of radical in her approach to morality. Um, So I'm starting to write something about her, and I've been doing some research and reading different books about the White Rose Movement and about Sophie Scholl. And this one in particular... is interesting and and well worth reading, even if you want to approach it from a less academic angle, because this book tells the story of Sophie's life in poetry in verse. Um, So it's kind of interesting to read. It's very beautifully written and and tells the story in a clear way, but with beautiful language as well. Um, It's very emotional to read. So yeah, I would definitely recommend White Rose by Kip Wilson.
0: That's great. Uh, Sounds really interesting. Uh, Hannah, what about you?
3: Yeah, so this is actually the first book I read or rather listened to um, post-maternity leave, but it's called The House in the Pines by Ana Reyes. Um, I listened to it on Libre FM, and it was really good. I, As you guys know, I love thrillers and kind of like creepy books, so <laughs> it was like the perfect, most fitting one for me to read um, first. But yeah, so it's pretty much like, it's kind of part ghost story, part thriller-ish it's about a woman who is definitely an alcoholic struggles with a lot of addiction problems and she had witnessed uh two murders throughout her life and so um but she kind of questions what's real and what's not because of her addiction issues and so just sort of um She kind of goes on this journey to figure out what actually happened to the people who died. Uh, There's like a viral video where someone just drops dead um, around that she knows. And they just literally like look straight ahead and drop dead in a diner. (laughs) And so it's kind of how the book starts and it just goes into this whole uh, kind of mysterious rabbit hole, but it's really good. And I love her voice too. She actually reads the book, um, the audio book, and it's just been really kind of a, it, going back to what um, George was saying in his blog post, it, it really adds a different element when you have someone that's kind of adding this personality, kind of acting into the parts of the book. So it's been a lot of fun to listen to. That's
0: great. Well, uh, I'm doing this month uh, books that I asked for for Christmas that are writing books. So I've got another one uh, in that art and this one is called the war of art break through the blocks and win your creative battles by Stephen pressfield and you know i read about half this book this morning at the doctor's office and it was like uh this is the kind of book you can stick in your pocket and read sort of anywhere it's uh got all this uh and and it's the kind of book that it doesn't have uh complete text on a page it'll have a point on a page and another point on a page but it's uh It's all about, uh, and we've talked about some of these things, but he does a really good job of summarizing some of these issues. And he divides the war of art uh, into several books. And the first book is on resistance. And uh, he talks about how everyone has resistance to certain projects or things that they want to do in their life. And he says, the more that someone has a uh, desire to do something that they're really passionate about, the more resistance they're going to feel toward doing it. And uh, he talks about uh, the tips and suggestions for how to get around that. So it's it's a very interesting book. It actually helps you sort of hold things up to uh, to yourself in the mirror and say, okay, yeah, I get it. This is not something that uh, people are going through alone. This is a thing that uh, every creative deals with. And uh, he's one of the the best and got some great comments. So it's it's not the art of war. It's the war of art uh, by Stephen Pressfield. Okay, um, let's hear what uh, Mark West has this week for us.
1: Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. My recommendation today is a novel that came out 50 years ago this year, that is, in 1973. It's a novel by Toni Morrison, and it's called Sula. Sula was Toni Morrison's second novel, her first The Bluest Eye came out three years earlier in 1970. Sula is set in a town in Ohio, and it deals with two women, one named Nell and the other named Sula. The story begins when they're children and it continues on right up through their old age. It's a story about friendship that kind of goes awry. It's a story about relationships, and it's a story about the role of Black women in American society. I highly recommend it.
0: All right. uh, So four recommendations there for you today, and uh, we've uh, come to the end of another episode. And uh, Sarah, can you tell us uh, what's coming next?
2: Yeah. Next time we're going to feature an interview with New York times, bestselling author, Steve Barry and his novel, the last kingdom, which is the 17th novel in the cotton Malone thriller series. In this one, the discovery of a lost historical document challenges the global might of the United States. We also feature Tammy Uliano, author of her second medical thriller misfire. And she's going to be sharing her blog post with us called challenges of a critique group. Then we're going to have a thought provoking Charlotte to a tip, uh, continuing their series on putting detail into your writing, Plus, we'll have some elevator pitches and share our book recommendations.
0: All right. Well, uh, listeners, thanks for uh, giving us some of your valuable time today. We really appreciate it. Uh, Until next time, um, read on and write on, as Hannah would say.
3: Rock on.